What is up on a Wednesday? I'm Brian Scott Rippey. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippey Writes Podcast. Got a little bit of a different Wednesday show for you. Uh, it will be me the whole time. Just uh, some solo action on this. Had to move some uh, guest interviews around. I'll have Michael Borky on for the uh, Friday podcast in addition to Mailbag Friday, uh, my former Super Talk cohort to talk about everything that's gone down that probably most of we'll get to today as well, from sliced bread to Jimbo Fisher to Lane Kiffin. I was going to wait and just do two podcasts this week, but I figured there was too much going on between all of that and the basketball game last night. Not to hop on and give a couple of thoughts. So this might be a little bit shorter podcast than usual. And like I said, it is just going to be a solo act the whole time. So if you are like my mother and perhaps many others who know me and you think that is too much me, uh, you could just fast forward through this one. But I think it'll be an interesting show. I uh, got some different clips to play from what was a uh, hell of a day from a news conference standpoint in the world of college football, or hell of a 24 hours, I should say, from Lane Kiffin uh, lobbing a turd in the punch bowl to Jimbo Fisher responding. We'll get into all that with some basketball thoughts in as well. So looking forward to diving into that. Before we get to all that, though, I want to remind you the podcast is brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, Glad you asked. They're the world's best gambling handicapping website, the inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval, an advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. Simply put, these guys are the best in the business. You need to go check out Skybox. They had a profitable weekend in college hoops over uh, this past weekend. Uh, you got Super Bowl bet. You want to get all your props in. They're going to have a Super Bowl package up on the site here soon. And then NASCAR is getting cranked up. Skybox's uh, niche expertise extends to NASCAR. They have a NASCAR guru uh, who specializes in that sport alone. And I'm going to get him on the podcast, as I keep mentioning, probably sometime in the next couple of weeks as I try to learn a new sport. I had him on last summer. It's a lot of fun. Asked a lot of dumb questions. But he is really good at handicapping NASCAR. I believe they were plus 38 units last year alone. So, uh, they're just printing money even when it comes to driving in circles and auto racing. So check that out. Be on the lookout for that if you're in a NASCAR. I think the season starts February 6th. The package will go live at the end of the month, though. But if you use the promo code NASCAR, that is N-A-S-C-A-R, if you needed me to spell that, then uh might have bigger issues on your hands. But you get 30% off. And if you use the promo code RIPPY, you get 20% off any other purchase. You need to go check these guys out. They're going to have a picks package to fit your price range, whether that's month-long, season long you can go week you can go all sports sports centric i recommend just doing the year-long all sports pass it's going to pay for itself and then some because skybox is the best in the business if you're into wagering and you're kind of diversifying what you're wagering on in particular you need to go with a professional like skybox no one's going to profit in the long run off their own dumb brain it's why the casinos are still open it's why books are still open they were not built on losses skybox are the professionals and they will lead you to profit more consistently than anyone else and particularly yourself you don't want the man texting you on Sunday nights asking where, uh, where, uh, where the uh, settle-up money is coming from. You want to be texting him asking where your additional income and beer money for the coming weekend is coming from. So check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. Again, use that promo code RIPPY to let them know we sent you. Podcast is also brought to you by LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. Go see Greg. It's absolutely the best place in Mississippi to get meat. Saw some action on the message board uh, earlier on Wednesday uh, about the buzz about the new Glugstat location. It's going to be awesome. I'm just as excited as you guys are, and I live in Texas, so I don't even get to enjoy it as often as you guys do, but it's absolutely going to become a staple in and around the Jackson area. Uh, Rippy Wright subscribers. It's rippywrites.substack.com. I'm actually writing a newsletter sort of as we speak, not literally while we're podcasting, but uh, around the same time. Uh, that's rippywrites.substack.com. You get a free newsletter for me three to five times a week and discounted meats. Right now, it's a 16-ounce prime strip for 20 bucks and a $5 pack of sausage. Just go show Greg, get you subscribed to the newsletter. He'll get you set up. Then go find your own favorites. Crab stuff, mushrooms, all kinds of delicious sausages, seafood. I like the filet burgers. You got the Lane Train special bacon wrap filet. All kinds of different cuts. LB's is the best place in Mississippi and in the world, for that matter, to get meat. Love it when people send me pictures of what they got on the grill from LB's via social media always makes me hungry because greg wants to make your grilling experience great and lb's is the best way to do that go check him out all right where where should we start let's should we start with lane kiffin throwing a 
turd into the punch bowl and really just stirring the pot as Lane Kiffin loves to do. So Tuesday, Lane Kiffin had his pre-signing day press conference because that's really just kind of how roll how things roll now. Did you know that technically, as I record this on a Wednesday afternoon, technically Wednesday was National Signing Day. How many of you forgot that? Maybe some of you did. Maybe a lot of you did. I don't know. It is certainly not the same signing day as if you're around my age and we're in college. Uh, basically being a holiday. I mean, we had dudes taking deciding whether they were going to go to class that day based around kids' commitments. And it's just not that way anymore. Between the portal and the early signing period and everything else, these this no, no, I was about to say November, this February signing period is really just a thing of the past. Like you select few kids, maybe some grade risks, maybe some undecided kids uh, sign in this period, but it, it's very few, about 80% of kids sign in the December signing period now. So like it's gone from a, what used to be a national, national holiday with water wall coverage on ESPN, SEC network, what have you, to you barely even noticed it came and went, right? I mean, even particularly for Ole Miss this year because they're not signing any more high school kids because of this portal-heavy strategy that we've gotten into and we'll get further into, I'm sure, on this podcast in the coming weeks and months. But it's just weird. I don't know. It's quickly how, it's, it's, it's weird how things change so quickly just a couple years removed from implementing the early signing period to now this February uh, signing day or signing period just being largely irrelevant. But – I don't think that this is the permanent solution. I think they're going to have to restructure the, this, how we, we do the signing thing, particularly with the portal, because this is not a great setup. There's no way coaches love it, particularly new coaches when you're trying to put together a staff uh, after you take a job in you know, early December, late November, if you're lucky, and trying to get everything prepared in your ducks in a row for uh, signing day, you know, two weeks before Christmas. I don't really know who thought that was a great idea, but uh, it doesn't seem conducive for really any parties involved. So I think more change is coming. But anyway, the overall point is just that things uh, in terms of how signing day is handled from a media coverage standpoint in this February period is different. So Lane Kiffin had his pre-signing day press conference or availability or whatever the hell it was yesterday. And, buddy, did he take that as an opportunity to get his message across. From the opening statement on, it was clear that Kiffin had a direct, a direct, uh, a direct idea and a plan of how he wanted that press conference to go and the message he wanted to get out. And uh, it has sent ripples and shockwaves across the uh, college football landscape. That is for certain. That might even be a bit of an understatement. I remember when I was working still full-time as a reporter and having to sit through these press conferences, the opening statement, particularly like a signing day press conference, was uh, some sort of canned response about how they got 25 great outstanding young men who are going to be great leaders in the classroom. They're all perfect fits for the football team yada, 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 and then you would get into the questions. I was listening to Chase and Neil's podcast this morning, or from this morning, before I started recording, at least the beginning part of it, and Chase mentioned that uh, the SID Brad Sheffield, uh, when Lane sat down, I don't know if Ole Miss, like Lane still does like opening statements, I haven't been around a long, like I wasn't around long enough for them to do like real press conferences uh, when Lane got there before I left. So like, I don't know if the opening statement is like a normal thing or like that was a different one, but Chase mentioned that Brad asked or kind of suggested Lane give a statement on his portal class, not necessarily the class and signing day as a whole. Makes sense, right? They didn't take any more high school kids since the early signing period thing, but that Kiffin kind of like not caught off guard, but kind of took that and ran with it. And boy, did he run with it. Here's his opening statement setting the table for clearly what he wanted to talk about yesterday um, here is after he made a joke about Lincoln Riley being the king of the portal for getting Caleb Williams. Here's what he started discussing immediately upon sitting down. Bear with me. I think this audio plays pretty good, but uh, the uh, IT department here at Rippy Rights is uh, still working through some things or working to optimize this, but I think it'll work. Here we go. Title over to him. So, but we're still working, and I think that's really what's going to happen now. You're just going to be year round you know, looking at things. Um, our SEC rule goes into effect of SEC to SEC right now of stopping that, but, you know, NCAA does not have something like that. So you basically have year-round free agency in, in football, which would obviously be a major issue why they don't do it in the in professional sports in the NFL. So it is what it is. We're just trying to make the best of the rules and the situations. So that's his opening statement, and two things stick out. One, he calls it an issue, which, you know, if you're trying to make a point point, you're trying to dictate the course of a conversation over the next 15 minutes, 
he pointed out an issue in his opening statement. That is very clearly what he wanted to discuss. And uh, that was, was really just the beginning of, uh, of what the press conference ended up unfolding into becoming. Some people played along with it, and I mean that in like a good way, asking him big picture stuff. But even when he got asked questions about particular guys, I think Zach Evans was one. He got asked about Zach Evans that stuck out. And it, he went back to roster building and the rules and everything in place. So I guess before we get too much further into this uh, pot stirring episode, you can get the obvious out of the way. What is the obvious here? One, Lane Kiffin loves to stir the pot. I think like after this happened yesterday and I got a chance to sit down and like watch the actual press conference. Like I saw clips of it yesterday while I was uh, working my day job. And then once it uh, came online, I wanted to like see it for myself and get like the full context of it. Lane just loves having something to gripe about or poke at. And I don't even necessarily mean that as an insult. Like we all have that one friend that loves to just kind of throw something out there to stir the pot and get the group going. Um, you could actually make that characterization about me in some respects sometimes. <laughs> not, a, not necessarily about serious stuff, but I sometimes like to prod people and kind of get, get them all riled up. I think Kiffin loves doing that all the time because, my God, from the time he stepped on campus at Ole Miss, it is always something, whether it's poking someone at social media and just randomly body bagging Brian Kelly last week, wondering if he lost a bet or if that video, cringeworthy video of him dancing with the kid that ended up signing with Alabama today, ironically, was fake or Photoshopped. Kiffin loves stirring the pot. It is always something. You talk to people that work around him, and it's kind of the same thing. Like, it's always something. Like, if you do it one way, well, why are we doing it this way? There's some good quality in that. There's some bad in that. But clearly, Kiffin was trying to stir the pot a bit uh, because I think he probably knew that Jimbo Fisher had a signing day press conference on Wednesday. I think he probably – wanted him to have to address something I don't know if that's the direct motive but like there's just no way he threw this out here when we'll get to the A&M stuff in a minute I kind of jumped the shark but there's no way he went down this path and then named Texas A&M by name and without it being somewhat calculated so I think there was some of that to it but again he's just a guy that kind of likes to third things up but there's also a part of this to where I think he does think this is an issue and he deserves some credit for being one of the few coaches that is honest enough to kind of call it how it is. Uh, he did it in a rather abrasive way, uh, kind of doing the salary, uh, the luxury tax uh, jab at Texas A&M. But he's being more honest than 99% of college football coaches in this industry. He's probably You could probably say he's being more honest than all of them. So you, you got to give him credit for that. But he was just getting started. Here is his comment about Jimbo Fisher and Texas A&M signing class. You know, we don't have the same, you know, funding resources as as some of these schools do, you know, to for these NIL deals. And so it's basically dealing with different salary caps. We now have a sport that has completely different salary caps. And some of these schools are, you know, whatever, five, ten times more than everybody else of what they can pay the players. So I know nobody uses those phrases, but that is what it is. So I joked the other day, I didn't know if, Texas A&M was going to occur a luxury tax, you know, and um, how much they paid for their signing class. The shit-eating grin, for the lack of a better phrase, on Kiffin's face after he made this comment tells you all you need to know about his affinity for stirring, loving stirring the pot. If you're a newsletter subscriber, that's rippywrights.substack.com, little self-plug there, I will put a screenshot or something of the look on his face if you haven't seen it, maybe most of you, some of you have seen it in the immediate second after he finished that sentence and ended his answer. Uh, Neil actually asked that question. It is the most mischievous looking grin I've seen in a while. I'm actually very impressed by it. I wish I could put on a face like that when I was up to no good. So clearly there's that element, but there is merit to what he's talking about in his first answer or in his first statement in the opening statement. That is when he started talking about, you know, year-round free agency, and there's a reason that the NFL doesn't have that. I think there's – I mean, he's stating the obvious in some ways, but at least he's kind of speaking out on it and trying to, I guess, maybe coax some people to make a change to it because it is an issue. I think he's accurate in calling that. There is a reason that the NFL doesn't have year-round free agency. It doesn't make any sense. Like, you'd have guys' contracts coming up in the middle of the season and then being able to sign with another team. Like, that doesn't really make any sense at all like there's a reason there's a free agency window and then it closes like that's the time you sign guys to contracts and 
everything else. And Forky and I talked about that right after um, we did a podcast, I think right after the egg, I mean, the sugar bowl, maybe a week or two after about how exhausting it is to keep up with the transfer portal because it never really stops and it's year round. And we came up with the whole, well, why not do it like a signing window and have a transfer portal window? It's not really like some groundbreaking concept. I'm sure every single sports media person you've listened to that covers college football and has talked about this topic has, you know, put out or thrown out some sort of idea. That's not some novel concept, right? That's not earth shattering stuff, but I think it is certainly needed. And so I think Kiffin has a valid point there and it is a bit of an issue and like, it's somewhat exhausting. I mean, you know, the system is messed up. I know for a fact that at least one assistant coach, I think all of them are on vacation this week. Um, One of them I'm doing a completely unrelated story on and they're on vacation this week. I think they get the next two weeks off or something like that. Like, I mean, National Signing Day was technically today. So, you know, it's a messed up system when the second signing period, dudes are taking vacations. And look, I know it's a dead period and there's nothing they can actually do, but like, that doesn't seem like a system that's functioning as it was designed to be. So, he's got a point there. And as far as the AM part of it goes, why AM? Well, AM's gotten a lot of publicity for one, having the number one recruiting class in the country, you know, taking taking that throne from what is usually Alabama, maybe an occasional Ohio State or LSU mixed in. But Alabama's – and Georgia – excuse me, Georgia. I'd be stupid not to add that one in there. But that's kind of been dominated by Alabama or Georgia in the last half decade or so. And now A&M took it over by a pretty sizable margin. If you look at the amount of five stars they signed, they added another one today. So there's a lot of publicity and kind of rumor-ish stuff uh, regarding their NIL fund and them taking advantage of it and how large it is and the $30 million allegedly they spent or 31, whatever the number is on the signing class. Given just, I mean, that's a, when they talk about coaches being honest and candid, even when coaches are honest and candid, they rarely go to the point where calling out someone else in the SEC and just being like, well, you know, we can't do that here at Ole Miss. Um, you rarely hear that. Like, you rarely hear coaches kind of call each other out by name. And I know he didn't necessarily say Jimbo Fisher, but, my God, he said Texas A&M, the institution that he works for. I doubt he was just using Texas A&M as a random example. I feel pretty confident he was probably not using it as a completely random example. Another question that came to mind throughout all of this is, why exactly did he do this? Like, what is – is there anything beyond him just trying to point out an issue – uh, as it pertains to NIL, which everyone knows this is an issue, right? If you talk about the – we talked about this a ton on this podcast and I'm sure elsewhere, newsletter, what have you, of NIL is great in theory for the players. I mean, I'm, I'm – everyone else – I and everyone else all for these kids making as much money as humanly possible. But when it's completely unregulated, it breeds total and utter chaos and that will lead to – what you haven't always had in college football, and that's three or four programs benefiting from it more than everyone else, and there being a complete lack of parity in the sport. Now, it might be six, seven, eight programs now rather than three or four. It might benefit in that sense. I imagine you, I don't see any reason why USC wouldn't crush it in NIL. I don't understand any reason why Texas and Texas A&M wouldn't crush it in NIL. Just look at their athletic budgets, look at the alumni base. So maybe it's opening the door for a couple more programs to kind of get in on that elite level, but you're still going to have an imbalance and impair and a lack of parity in a sport that's never really had it. So, but what is he trying to get at? Is he just trying to raise awareness, push people to rectify the issue? That's the other part of this is there's not exactly a strong governing body that is going to fix this by any means. I mean, the NCAA is essentially powerless at this point. It's why you had Mark, Emmert sitting on Capitol Hill this summer basically begging Congress to enact some sort of legislation and they regulate it because he has no idea what to do. And basically this NIL compromise was, well, between the NCAA and the schools and the players, well, you can't have our money, but you can make your own money. That's essentially what this came to be. And he can't legislate it because that kind of undermines exactly what the NCAA is in place to do. So again, I have used this example a lot. Like no one was no one is going to ever sympathize with Mark Embert, but I empathize with him a little bit where he's sitting up there begging Congress to do something about it because it was going to turn into a shit show. And now what do you have? You have a complete and utter shit show. So I get him from that standpoint. Uh, that would probably be the first and the last time you hear me empathize with Mark Embert in that sense. But drawing it back to Kiffin, what is exactly he trying to get done here? 
Is he just getting out his thoughts and being candid and honest, which he does uh, actually more often than other coaches, or is there some ulterior motive there? Because, you know, what he goes on to say is talking about how he can't do that at Ole Miss, right? They don't have the $30 million for a signing class or whatever the number might be, despite Texas A&M and Jimbo Fisher denying it, which we'll get to in a minute. Is I doubt he's prodding Ole Miss to kind of get on top of the ball because I would argue with Ole Miss's, you know, the Grove Collective and the couple of the NIL things that popped up, I would argue Ole Miss has been more on top of the ball than most schools when it comes to NIL. There were a few. There were a handful of schools that were out in front of it uh, earlier than Ole Miss was. But on the grand scale of where Ole Miss usually falls in line when it comes to NIL stuff, they were actually more proactive than I figured they were and got it together quicker. And that's a credit to, you know, alumni donors and, you know, what whatever role the athletic department can play in it, wink, wink, for getting it together that quickly. So I don't exactly know what Kiffin is prodding at or what exactly his motive for this play was, other than maybe it's just the simple you know, genuineness of wanting to bring awareness to something he feels is unfair. Now, the ironic part about it is, is there's probably not a coach in the country that's benefited more from the transfer portal than Lane Kiffin. But I don't think that's a great like retort to being upset with what Kiffin said. And not that most of you people listening are upset about it, but it did kind of, obviously A&M fans probably pretty upset about it. I don't think a smart retort is, well, you use the transfer portal more than anyone. Uh, Jimbo Fisher actually said that today. Again, I'll get to that in just a second. Like, so, like, it's there and available to you. Like, Kevin's not denying that. Multiple things can be true at once. He can think it's a screwed-up system and also utilize the transfer portal to his advantage, which is what he absolutely did, which is honestly probably what Jimbo Fisher should have – the approach he should have taken in answering it. But to wrap up the Kiffin part of it, it's fascinating from a lot of perspectives because he walked in that room knowing exactly what he wanted to say yesterday and what he wanted to dictate. And he's one of the biggest and most powerful figures – in college football, and he is very much aware of the weight his voice has in the sense of people talking about it. Now, he's not Nick Saban to where, look, if Nick Saban wants to get something investigated behind the scenes or changed behind the scenes, by God, that shit's getting changed, particularly if it is up to Greg Sankey in the SEC office. I don't think he carries that kind of weight. I don't think he's swinging that big of a stick, but I think he knows the wide reach of his voice and the ripple effect and honestly, some of the chaos that it causes. And I think he, uh, I think he plans to utilize, utilize that. And yesterday it was a way he wanted to utilize it. There was actually one more clip that stuck out and it came actually from Ross Dellinger asking Kiffin a follow-up to the whole fixing it and doing it better aspect of things. And here, I'll just play it first before we get into the free agency salary cap stuff. And then I'll shift to Jimbo Fisher. But here's what Kiffin's answer was regarding how do you do this better? your thoughts on how to how to fix this well you, you, they probably got to do that like you said I mean that's <clears throat> I always said, look to people that have done it a long time they know what they're doing the NFL knows what they're doing it's not open free agency all year round for a reason and you got long-term contracts for a reason so you know <clears throat> kids can't leave at any point of any year all the time so um and somehow they're gonna I bet try to control NIL because now you got like I said before, you've got these salary caps of places, you know, giving players millions of dollars to play before they ever play and other places not being able to do that. So what would, what would the NFL look like if there were a couple teams in the NFL that their salary cap was 10 times more everybody else's salary cap? You know, so that's where you're headed. So they're going to have to do something or I guess they don't, but is what it is. Well, to answer Kiffin's question at the end there, what would the NFL look like if one team's salary cap was 10 times bigger than the other? What would that look like? Well, it would look like Major League Baseball. And what he's actually talking about is a lack of a salary cap, which was the entire point he was trying to make. But, you know, if you have one team that's capable as a bigger budget or a bigger payroll is probably the term he should have used. You have the NL or the AL East. You have the Tampa Bay Rays versus the Boston Red Sox and the New York Yankees. But, College football doesn't really work that way. Like, don't, Ole Miss cannot be the Tampa Bay Rays of uh, college football. There's just – I mean, talent matters too much in football, and there's just not enough of it, I don't think, to overcome beating – and being able to overcome it and being able to overcome the gap and being able to beat Alabama 
and Auburn and LSU or whomever is, you know, towards the top of the West in a given year if you're a program like Ole Miss. Now, with that said, I think he's trying, and maybe that's where some of this is coming from because you talk about the portal strategy, right? Ole Miss has the number one ranked portal class in the country, and they went entirely portal heavy. He had a quote in there earlier talking about, you know, there's no evidence if this works or not, but we're going to try to be cutting edge. Well, I mean, to me, that's a little bit of money, like Moneyball minus the nerd analytics. Like he's trying to do something different because I think he realizes that Ole Miss can't recruit the same type of kids in Alabama and a Texas A&M can. You know, people don't like to hear that. And you point to the Hugh Freeze era. That's an anomaly in given the history of Ole Miss football. Now, could Ole Miss get to a point to where they could? Maybe. I'm not saying it's impossible. I think the fact that people kind of give a stank eye when Ole Miss lands kids like they did in the 2013 and 2016 classes versus when Alabama does it is incredibly silly. But I think that's becoming a more and more outdated way of thinking. But the point I'm making here, I guess, is that I think Kiffin sees that. I think he's brutally honest almost to a fault at times and he's trying to do something different so I think this transfer portal strategy is in part a way to as he put it be cutting edge and try a different way of doing things now is most of it not wanting to go undergo a gigantic rebuild in a year you won 10 games you had a generational talent at quarterback as he describes it and losing a lot off the roster sure but even after this year it doesn't sound like from everything you read and you hear that this is going to change. So as long as Kiffin is at Ole Miss, and maybe all this becomes moot in a couple of years because I doubt he's making retirement plans in Oxford if you're picking up what I'm putting down, maybe this is the norm and this is what he's trying to do to supplement that. And maybe that's where some of this gripe is coming from. I am interested in learning why he chose now because I figured yesterday would be the day where you flex on the fact that you added the best transfer class in the country, according to whatever the rating system is out there. I think it's 247 Sports. I try to use a Rivals one if I could, just because, you know, shout out Rebel Grove. But I can't find a Rivals portal class rankings. But that would that's what I thought was going to be the case yesterday. Like, we're really proud of the way we retooled the roster and being innovative and all that. But instead, he took this approach. And it's, I guess, somewhat surprising. But again, from the time the opening statement happened, you knew where this soccer was headed. I'm just curious... Uh, I guess why he did that. And we may never necessarily know the answer to that. Now to the back part of it, when he talks about the salary cap and then fixing it, I think there is merit to that, right? Like I think he wants, it's interesting because he's calling for a more even playing field in a sport that's never had a level playing field. And the last SEC program he worked for was at the top of the most imbalanced playing field in professional sports. I, again, I think there's probably a little bit more imbalance in some of the European soccer stuff, but uh, we're still learning on Soccer Corner over here. Maybe in a year or two I could break down some soccer payroll stuff. But you get the, you get the big picture here, right? Like he's calling for an even playing field in a sport that's never had it. And I don't really know how NIL gets regulated from a salary cap standpoint. I could see it being regulated in other areas and really kind of cracking down on making sure it's all above board and I guess more red tape for the lack of a better phrase, um, around it to make sure these deals are above board and you got to jump through more hoops to actually register them. And I guess harsher penalties if you don't. But then again, the NCAA's left it up to state governments to, to enforce this. And, like, I, I, what, is, what does that actually mean? Like, the NCAA, like the NCAA is – I saw they were poking around at Oregon a couple of days ago asking about a potential NIL deal, and I think Oregon was like, nah, you actually can't have that information. So, like, if there's no one enforcing it, then what are we doing here? But that leads into what I'm talking about with the salary cap part of it. How can you cap NIL in terms of the amount of money schools, really donors, can spend? Because at the end of the day, you're basically telling rich people how to spend their money and how much of it they can spend. And what it's going toward is almost completely unregulated. So, like, in that sense, I'm not necessarily sure how you can salary cap this by any stretch. Maybe they can. Maybe I'm wrong and I'm just not seeing it. And we could probably have someone on the podcast eventually. I'm actually looking into that that would maybe know. But it's such a wild it's such a wild west right now in such a wild time. I don't even necessarily know who to talk to who would know because all of this is so unprecedented. So, I think Kiffin has a fair gripe about that and clearly he's being genuine and honest in that I'm just not sure how that is ever getting solved now 
let's get to the second part of this because I think we covered the Kiffin part. He's very uh, not he's very much not a fan of you know some schools having gigantic budgets, um, nil budgets than others. But again, this is the same thing that's been going on for years, just now all above board, which Jimbo Fisher classically outlined a month ago. But maybe because it's all above board, he feels a little bit more comfortable. Um, kind of calling it out. I don't really know, but it's kind of funny. He's like getting a taste of maybe being one one of the have-nots when he worked at a have and a couple haves, uh, that being USC and then being the OC at Alabama. Who knows? But talked about at the top. Kevin did this to cause a stir, throw the turd in the punch bowl, right? Well, hook, line, and sinker. He got Jimbo Fisher very angry. Fisher had his signing day press conference on Wednesday and – went off on a variety of different topics um, all the way from calling saying that Kiffin, you know, the guys that the SEC coaches that complain about it are the ones using it the most. I don't know why he just didn't say Lane Kiffin. Well, I kind of know why, but he was basically saying Lane Kiffin uh, to, you know, calling out the media for being irresponsible for running with the 30 million IL number to outright denying it, saying it's the best place to get an education in the world. And have you ever been to a game here? Why don't we just play the audio? Here's, Clip one of Jimbo Fisher being very angry about people accusing him of using NIL legally to get this signing class. Here we go. One more thing. I don't know who asked this question, but I'm going to include the question in this clip because this is the most loaded question of all time. I, this this has to be one of those tech-sized, tech-ags trash programs, bro. Some of you are going to get that reference. The way this question is worded, I'm going to include the question here because, my God, talk about shaping a question to get an answer. Watch this or listen to this. Do you kind of consider it a slap in the face or whatever when there's these thoughts out there that Very. it's because a lot of money is being spent and just your thoughts? Here's what I'm going to say, and this is point blank. This is point blank to the – because here, here's, here's my problem. There is no $30 million fund. There is no $5 million. There is no 10 This is garbage, okay? And it does. It pisses me off that people – and here it comes from a site called Bro Bible by a guy named Slice Bread, and everybody runs with it. So it's written on the Internet. It's gospel. How irresponsible is that? You got – I'm going to tell you, some of, there's some very reputable writers in college football and sports that wrote it and have said it and have done things. That's unbelievable to me. Some, I, when I first heard it, I laughed. I said, oh, yeah, what a clown. I mean, somebody – I didn't even think anything of it because I don't have social media. And it kept building, and lately I've heard more about it. To me, it's insulting to the players that we recruited that that's why they would come here. You ever been to a game here? You ever come to school here and see the education? You ever talk about the 12th man in the Aggie Network when you're done? There ain't a better university in this country. And it's insulting to what you say. And all these – and we got writers who, who have said it and done it off sliced bread. A guy named Sly who made it up. Love to see who sliced bread is and put it out there with sliced bread. Let me find out where it comes from. Okay. So, a lot going on there. For those of you that are wondering what the hell – Slice bread and bro Bible is bro Bible is a sports and I would say men's lifestyle website based out of New York. Uh, actually, a friend of mine, a guy named Mark Harris, writes a lot of golf stuff there. I'm not, I'm, I don't read bro Bible on the regular, but I think it's a decent site. Like they 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 do decent funny stuff. It's kind of one of those modern internet sites, but they certainly don't cover SEC football on the regular. Now, when you're wondering who the hell is sliced bread. Uh, my sources deeply embedded at Bro Bible have told me that they do not employ such a character named Slice Bread, and they don't know who he, Jimbo Fisher is talking about, and they deny these salacious allegations. Uh, maybe it was a stringer that Slice Bread forgot about. You'd be surprised at how often people might forget about freelancers and stringers. But in, on a more serious note, what he's talking about is the original article from Bro Bible about Texas A&M paid an outrageous number, $30 million for their recruit number one ranked recruiting class through NIL, which is, again, I remind you, legal. It was aggregating a message board post from, I believe, an Oklahoma message board fan site where the poster's name was Sliced Bread. So Sliced Bread did not write the article on Bro Bible. I believe Sliced Bread was nefariously throwing around accusations about Texas A&M's program on, a, on an Oklahoma message board. So that's the clarification with that. Now that we fried the big, big fish, let's get back to the topic at hand. If I can put my uh, tinfoil hat on for a second and go full conspiracy theory, he talks about the media being dishonest and irresponsible. Are we sure that's not a planted question? 
the guy worded it like, hey, how this bad thing that's bad, how bad is it? Like, are we sure that's not a planted question? The reporter didn't even finish the question before Jimbo Fisher went on his answer. And I haven't pulled up the full press conference, but this clip is pretty lengthy. The YouTube clip I pulled up, I don't know if it's the first one, but if that was the first question asked in the press conference, come on. We, we sure this is not a planted question from trash pro bro uh, programs or trash programs, bro guy. Uh, that's a video that needs to make the rounds again. So maybe I'm still investigating that one. I think it's a planted question. Now Jimbo Fisher could have handled this a lot of ways. And I would give him a C minus to a D plus in how he handled this. What's an F you ask. Then F is tweeting out, if you have facts about a violation, please comp- tweet comply or email compliance at texasanm.edu. Otherwise, don't slander these young men and their families. I'm not saying that's a response that's ever happened before, but that would be an F if he did handle it that way. What would be an A plus response? Hell yeah, we've gotten on top of the ball as it pertains to NIL. Like these kids make universities a ton of money, they make TV networks a ton of money time they start making money for themselves and sorry not sorry that we've capitalized that capitalized on that legally better than anyone else so you know come at me bro to me that would be an a plus response why not lean right into it nil is here to stay so why would you not want it known out there that your program does nil better than anyone else i don't understand the denial aspect of it maybe he's just cranky because he got called out and this is a reaction to getting called out you ever been called out publicly it's embarrassing. No matter if you make $10 million a year, like Jimbo Fisher does, it's embarrassing. Like, have you ever been embarrassed whether it was just lighthearted or maybe not so lighthearted in front of a group of people? Like, your initial reaction to it is probably not going to be the most rational and level-headed reaction. I can empathize with Jimbo Fisher in that sense, but I do think he definitely could have answered and handled this a little bit better by leaning into it. Now, you heard on the back end of that clip, I have a couple of things that I find just absolutely absurd about this. You heard on the back end of it where he said, it's insulting to our staff who work so hard to get this class, and it's insulting to the players that signed here. Have you ever been to a game here? You know, Do you know about the Aggie education? Well, actually, Jimbo, I have been to a couple of games at a and I actually drove through to my hotel room one night while that midnight yell shit was going on. And if I were not from this planet, if I were someone or this country and you dropped me in the middle of that, I would think there was about to be a human sacrifice going on. So I am going to go out on a limb and say the midnight yell and the game day atmosphere is not why those kids chose Texas A&M. Call me crazy. Maybe I'm just a big conspiracy theorist. Maybe we'll rename this the Alex Jones InfoWars podcast, but I feel pretty concrete in that summation. Kids probably not going there for the education either. Feel pretty confident regarding that. So I don't understand that answer, particularly given what he said on Feinbaum a month ago, which we'll get into that here in a second. But like when you start playing the hand of we don't pay for players, and Nick Saban did this the other night, but again, that's a tangent I won't get into right now. When you start doing the we don't pay players, they came here because they love the game day atmosphere and they love the education and they just love being a Texas A&M Aggie. No one's buying that shit. And I think that's why Kiffin, in part, maybe, kind of played this the way he did. Because he comes up from a position of leverage. It's because he's being more honest than the other guy in terms of Jimbo. Now, did he know Jimbo was going to react this way? No, but he probably had a hunch. So the reason Kiffin, for better or for worse, is going to come out looking better in this is because he's being genuine and honest. Where Jimbo Fisher is saying with a straight face in a stern tone, something that no one, not even himself, believes. So that's a no-win situation from a PR 101 standpoint. Like when you're talking about a public mudslinging battle or a public spat in media, the guy lying and doesn't really believe the shit coming out of his mouth is never going to win that in the court of public perception. Jimbo Fisher probably doesn't care about that. I get it. What else are you going to say? Well, what else you can say is it's legal now. Yes, we're doing it, and we're doing it better than everyone else. So I didn't understand that aspect of it. Now, he continues on. Here's the part where he gets to Kiffin. Ready? Coaches in our leg and across this leg is say it. Clown acts. 
all right, irresponsible as hell, multiple coaches in our league. And the guy's griping about NIL, griping about transfer portal, using it the most and bragging about it the most. That's the ironic part. You want character? I'll, trust, I'll take it with any of y'all. It's a joke. It does piss me off. The other thing, when you look at, at, at vice president, I get another one, vice president of Notre Dame. Supposed to be a reputable university, right? That's a heck of a person leading a reputable university. I'd be real proud if I hired that guy. Read it off sliced bread. But it, it, they say it because it's written on the internet. What are, we worry about the kids and social media and internet. How about grownups? How about the guys that are supposed to be setting an example? How about writers who are supposed to be writing the right thing? How about coaches who are supposed to be doing the right thing? And I'll tell you what, I know how some of those guys recruit too. Don't dig into that. Okay. Again, a lot going on there in that clip. Um, he went from kind of being soft on not dunking on Kiffin directly when he said guys, multiple coaches, talking about it and being irresponsible clown acts. Really, he meant Kiffin because, again, Kiffin said these comments 24 hours prior. Then he just absolutely stray bullet some poor administrator at Notre Dame who was just trying to consume his daily dose of the bro Bible and tweeted out something that sliced bread rope. Poor guy. I don't see what that had any relevance to do with it. Maybe he's just upset about the situation in general. And then he takes it back to social media and talking about, we're mad about kids. What about these adults not setting examples? Um, I am pretty sure when he was saying that, he pictured the uh, Lane Kiffin, Portal King, Tiger King meme that he put out the other day. If you're not on Twitter, sorry, you're not going to understand that. But those of you that are probably saw it. That's probably what he had in his head. Now, the last part about this, he contradicted his entire point at the end of this, where he says, those other guys, I know how they recruit. Why don't you dig into that? So you saw in the number one class in the country when everyone else is cheating, but you, come on, dude, no one believes this. So again, why not just lean into it? It is above board. Part of this is coaches are so trained to just kind of publicly lie about the stuff they weren't able used to talk about that now that it's legal and above board, they still don't feel comfortable saying it. They still feel like they have to lie. What are you talking about, Rippy? Well, I'm talking about this. This was Jimbo Fisher one month, or excuse me, about a month and a half ago, mid-December after the early signing period on Paul Feinbaum. You can't promise things. You can't say, I'm going to get you an NIL deal, and that's illegal. I mean, all you can do is present what other players in your university have done in the past. That is all you're allowed to do. But there was a lot of NIL deals going on before all, before all this was going on. They just weren't legal. <laughs> no one told nobody. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, all that stuff in college. Now, we don't part of it but at the same time that's that's where you're at today's time at least it makes it out there and it is legal and the guys can get compensated but i think it's enticing in recruiting i think it's very dangerous in that way but i mean you got to enforce the rules when they're when they're broken you got to handle that part of it you can't so now jimbo fisher in about six weeks time because of the corner that lane kiffin and his pot stirring comments backed him into has gone from yeah paul you know not that we do it, but there were NIL deals going on long before NIL became a thing. Just no one talked about it. So he's openly admitting that this NIL stuff had been around for a long time. It was just called, you know, meet a guy in a Walmart parking lot with a bag of cash and shout out Leo Lewis or, you know, offer a guy six figures at the you know, 12th hour to get him to go to an out-of-state school versus an in-state school. Shout out to Dean. And just no one talked about it because it's – wasn't legal, and now it's all above board. But now, six weeks later, NIL had nothing to do with Texas A&M signing a number one class. This is a not to not to blow up Kiffin's ego more than it already is, but this was just a masterclass of a media noogieing from Lane Kiffin. Now, you know, was this warranted? And do you know? Can I see how antics and the way Kiffin approaches and stuff rubs people the wrong way? But my God, he painted Jimbo Fisher into a corner. Whether Jimbo Fisher went left or right knowing which way he was going to go and made him look like just a complete and total asshole and like I kind of empathize with Jimbo Fisher a little bit in the sense to where it's like what are you going to do again you could do the approach of hell yeah we do NIL correctly but I don't think anyone's comfortable doing that because I think again it goes back to these guys are so used to just toting the company line and we don't pay players I mean Nick Saban did it again last night at his, that Auburn Alabama he and Harson were at some event when he talks about we never paid for a kid. We never cheated for a kid, blah, blah, blah. But then went to SEC Media Days bragging about Bryce Young's $800,000 NIL deal at SEC Media Days and made a point to get that out. None of it makes any sense. They're all just raging hypocrites. And, you know, 
it's probably an indictment on us as consumers and as media to continually show the shock value of them being hypocrites because what else are we supposed to do? Well, now the point is that they don't have to be hypocrites. They're just so trained to that they haven't yet fully come out of the shell of, oh, actually, it's okay to talk about this, and actually, this is legal. Jimbo Fisher was almost there in December, but he crawled back into the shell there in January, which I just kind of find hilarious. And again, this is probably not what he wanted to be talking about when he signed the number one class in the country, but Lane Kiffin made sure that he was going to have to talk about it today. How intentional was that? I guess is up for debate, but I would call it pretty intentional. Now, the last part of this, when you get to the genesis of Jimbo Fisher's reaction, why did he react the way that he did, right? Why didn't he go left when he went right? And no, I'm not talking about political leanings. You can switch it up, right, left, whatever. Why did he go for full-on denial? These kids are here to get an education. These kids are here because the game day atmosphere is awesome. These kids are here because that guy that holds the tiki torch at midnight before games is awesome and totally not in a cult. Why did he go that way instead of, yes, we do NIL better? Well, we outlined some of it. It's unprecedented. It requires a level of genuineness that coaches I don't think are net used to with this NIL stuff because, as Kiffin pointed out, it is the Wild West, and no one really knows what to do with it or what to make of it yet, but they're sure as hell are capitalizing on it. But I think the other part of it is this. It reminded me of a scene in one of my favorite movies, The Wolf of Wall Street. You might have heard of it. Jordan Belfort, Stratton Oakmont, if you haven't seen the movie, I can't help you. But it reminded me of the scene, and I'll play the audio in a second, of them going to Geneva in Switzerland to hide their money in the Swiss banks or whatever. They're meeting with Rugrats' friends, the guy with the terrible uh, hairpiece, about uh, one of his law school friends about how to hide their money as the feds are creeping up on them. So they're going there, very few Swiss banking laws. They're trying to get money over there. And... It is after they cause a scene on the plane. They're in the car on the way over to meet with this banker. And this is the scene that unplays. Rugrat basically tells Donnie, hey, like, I'm sick of your shit. Let's not do this here. And Donnie's like, hey, why are you coming at me? Again, bear with me for a second. I know it's a little bit off the wall analogy, but here it is. When we get up there, try not to act like yourself, okay? Let's make Geneva an asshole-free Donnie's on, all right? What are you fucking coming at me for? Hey, listen, the only reason you're sitting this limo and not a Swiss jail is because of my friend, okay? <laughs> Short clip, but it's not the most perfect analogy, but I think in some senses, Jimbo Fisher probably had some sort of reaction of, hey, we're all playing the same game here. Like, the fuck are you coming at me for? Why are you calling me out? We're all doing this. We're all in the same industry. We're always all playing the same game. Jimbo Fisher alluded to it with, I know how some of those guys recruit. Like, you ever checked into them? Not that we do it, but you ever checked into them? Like, what are you calling me out for? All those three dudes in those cabs, Jordan Belford, his two buddies, are going to hide money they made illegally. And it's, not again, not the perfect analogy because most of this, when done correctly with NIL, is above board. But they're all playing the same sketchy, somewhat illegal game, right? Because technically, legal in Switzerland, what they're doing, going to hide the money over there, very few Swiss banking laws. Like, <laughs> Donnie Azoff is sitting there going, what are you coming at me for? Like, why, why are you telling me this? Like, we're, we're all in this same boat together. And I just think there's a sense of that in what Jimbo Fisher, uh, in his reaction, is it's like, why is this guy coming at me? We're all in the same business. We all know how this goes. What are you calling me out for? Like, what the hell is this? You do the same thing. Like, you know, look in the mirror, those in glass houses type of thing. I don't know why I thought of that movie scene. Maybe that analogy makes no sense. I just immediately thought of like, what are you coming at me for, bro? And that's one of my favorite movies and a line that sticks out. Let's make Geneva an asshole-free Donnie's. He goes, well, what are you coming at me for? Anyway, so that's pretty much all the takes I have on that saga. That may have been wide, uh, widely just a rambling segment of nonsense. I don't know. Again, still getting the hang of these solo podcasts, but um, a masterclass in stirring the pot from one Lane Kiffin and I think part of the genius in it is it, he's not hiding behind, but it's through the guy, he's stirring the pot through the guise of a legitimate issue because it does need to get fixed. This NIL stuff is madness. It's exhausting to keep up with. The portal is exhausting to keep up with. The NIL thing is completely unregulated. Certain schools are at a complete disadvantage than others in terms of what their quote unquote 
NIL laws are, but then you're sitting there thinking, well, why do they have to follow those NIL laws? Who's actually enforcing this and going to bust them? But if you're a school like Ole Miss, you know, less than a half decade or just over a half decade removed from a immensely high profile NCA investigation, are you really going to take the risk of busting the rules again, or at least abrasively busting the rules? You get the picture. So like, you know, Texas doesn't really have as many strict NIL laws as Ole Miss does. I'm not, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not about to try to interpret state constitutions and shit like that. But basically, from what I can gather, you can much op- more openly broker NIL deals in Texas than you can in Mississippi. And I think that's a disadvantage for the Mississippi schools. Actually, I don't think that. I know that. I think that's something that Kiffin had his mind, had his mind on yesterday. So I guess to wrap this up, a clap to Lane Kiffin because this guy is just media gold from the Twitter account to everything else. I don't always like understand all of it. And I don't always like, I guess, quote unquote, love it. Not that he gives a damn what I think, but man, that guy can play the media and play and get messages through the media and play them like a damn fiddle. And that's really not as much as I love the shit on the media and the dying, decaying profession it's becoming. That's not an indictment on the media. That is very much just a compliment to Lane Kiffin. That man got his message out there and put an opposing SEC West coach's brain in a pretzel and made him look like a total asshole in the process. So congrats to Kiffin for that. I don't know exactly what it will end up doing, but if that was the goal, mission accomplished, pal. All right, the last thing in this shortened uh, solo podcast I wanted to get to before we get out of here was Ole Miss won a basketball game last night down uh, on the bayou in the Red Stick, Baton Rouge. They beat LSU 75-72, to I think it was, maybe 77. It doesn't matter. Ole Miss won a really gutsy road game in an LSU team. They kind of had their backs up against the wall and really needed to win that game. Now, LSU's dealing with some injuries. They're a little bit healthier. The Pinson kid played last night. So, you know, they're not, I guess, quote, at full strength, but they're closer to it than they were two and a half weeks ago. LSU, I think, has now lost five of six in the last four of their five SEC games. They lost a road contest uh, right in my backyard to TCU on the road over the weekend in the SEC Big 12 Challenge, but LSU is sliding. And, you know, I mentioned them being injured. They're really actually not. I mean, Darius – I say not. They're Darius – they had injury, a couple pretty huge injuries early in the season, but Darius Days and, and Pinson played last night. So they were pretty much as close to full strength as they've been since, the you know, the whole losing streak started or the slide started. And Ole Miss won a really gutsy basketball game last night. And I have a couple points that I wrote down while watching that game last night. One – this has to start – this conversation has to start with Deshaun Ruffin. This kid – I hate to use the cliche in, like, in terms of saying he's coming into his own, but this kid is figuring it out. Um, he's an unbelievably talented scorer. And it's for someone who – you know, he had the wrist injury in the season over against New Orleans and basically missed the entire non-conference schedule. I think he played limited minutes in one game and then – kind of a little bit of a more extended leash in the second non-conference game and then had one tune-up basically before they were supposed to start SEC play with Florida where he wasn't really on a minutes restriction and kind of let loose. And now that he's, you know, 12 games into his real collegiate career because he played 15 minutes in the opener, he is, for a diminutive, like a a smaller guard, for those of us not in the six-foot club, shout out, hand up here, he's an inspiration to us all. And he's learned – he's a good finisher at the rim. He's become a better finisher at the rim. I think he's finally starting to figure out how to finish amongst, around, and through contact, particularly with guys that are larger than him around the rim. And I think you saw that on display last night. He had 19 points in – I think he had 19 points in like 23, 24 minutes, something along there, before – he took a baseline jumper, got fouled on said baseline jumper, or excuse me, uh, free throw line extended jumper, got fouled on that free throw line extended jumper, and hyper extended his knee, was not able to return. He had 19 points in about 24 minutes last night. And one of the things that I think is probably ind- indicative of the maturation process is, one, he made a couple of three-point shots last night. And once he started doing that, you could tell that LSU didn't really know what to do with him. Ruffin was two of four from the three-point line before he exited the game. And he made his first two, I believe, early in the first half. And you could tell, no matter who they had on him, 
it was kind of in the back of the defender's mind a little bit. Like you've seen guys not necessarily close as hard out on Ruffin because he's so electric off the bounce. And he hasn't really had a very good perimeter jump shot so far. He made a couple and now it's like, okay, do I go back? Yeah. Close out a little harder. Do I kind of open the up the opportunity for him to beat me by me off the dribble when I'm coming on a closeout? Like they were, it was, you could tell it was clearly kind of festering in the LSU's defenders heads. And I think it also helped that Ole Miss for his offensively challenged of a team. They were our first 17 minutes of the first half. They were about as locked in from perimeter jump shooting and three point line as they have been all year. I think Ole Miss. Seven of 11 in the first half from three point range. And I believe they missed their last two. So they started seven of nine. So I think it helped that there was just kind of a three point onslaught while Ruffin was heating up from the perimeter that kind of made LSU double, double, uh, or think twice a bit in terms of how they were defending Ruffin. But beyond that, beyond the perimeter jump shot, which I think will come, you know, if Ruffin ends up staying around the Ole Miss program and becomes a two, three year player or whatever, if he can develop a somewhat consistent perimeter jump shot that went in anywhere close to the rate it did last night. It's not even just the three-point shot. He had a couple step-back mid-range that were really big, big-time, big-time moves, um, like high-caliber high SEC scoring moves. That's going to make him a hell of a tough assignment night in on a night-out basis, even despite his size. Because, man, when that kid can beat you at the rim and is a really gifted finisher and is – kind of underrated with both hands and how he finishes. That just adds an element to where it's like, what what do you do with this guy? So beyond that, though, I think another thing that I've noticed with Ruffin is he's learning how to get fouled. So as a smaller guy, not that I would have any serious experience with this, I have somewhat not so serious experience with this. You're not necessarily going to get the benefit of the doubt when you're driving to the rim. The 5'9 guy is not going to get a ton of sympathy from the baseline official going up against a guy or driving on a guy and trying to finish at the rim against a dude that's, you know, somewhere in the six, four to six, seven range. Ruffin has gotten a lot more keen and wise or crafty with how he draws fouls. And I don't think that's a complete accident either, because you look at Deshaun Ruffin's last four games. So he went, he had a stretch from the start of SEC play on, he had shot one free throw against Tennessee. He had six against Mississippi State in the game in which he scored 17. Then you're talking three free throw attempts, two, four, and zero in that road loss at Mississippi State. Since then, he got to the line 10 times against Florida, five times on a terrible offensive night for him against Arkansas, nine against Kansas State, and five in like 20-something minutes. Yeah, he had 19 points in 20 minutes last night, not 24, excuse me. So he got to the line five times in 20 minutes last night. He is becoming smarter in terms of how to draw contact. And I think that comes with playing, you know, eight or nine SEC games and kind of getting your feet under you as a high school kid drawn into a major role on an SEC team. And I think that's part of his maturation process, which again, makes him a really tough guard. I don't think it's any coincidence he's coming off, a, you know, SEC freshman of the week. The first time Ole Miss has had one of the, someone win that award since Jarvis Summers in 20, in 2011. He scored 21, 10, 17 and 19 in his last four games. That 10-point performance against Arkansas, he went two of seven from the field. As I mentioned, he got fouled a couple times and manufactured some points on a tough offensive night by getting to the line. He's becoming smarter and more crafty in how he draws fouls. And, man, if that kid develops a perimeter jump shot that is somewhat reliable or something that defenses have to consistently respect, he's going to become – I hate using the word unstoppable for guys that are not putting up 25 a night and then – in the uh, in the old association, the NBA, but man, he's going to be a tough assignment. And then on top of that, beyond the rough and stuff, because I hope that injury isn't serious. It looked I'm not a doctor. I just pretended to play one on radio for a while. It looked like a knee hyperextension. Even the uh, TV guy, the color analyst, I don't remember what his name was, took some liberties to say, "Hey, I played a lot of hoops. I've had that injury before. I'm pretty sure that's a hyperextension. That's not going to put him out for the year, but." Not that it matters a ton with Ole Miss's grandstanding in terms of the postseason, but you know, for the sake of this team in the immediate short term, they can't really have a, afford to have that guy miss games, which leads me into the segue. The other part of this, hats off to the team for not quitting. We wrote about this in the newsletter this past week, where Ole Miss faced a three-game week at home, coming off just 
a embarrassing and really pathetic loss to a bad Missouri team at home and then getting your ass kicked in Starkville. Now you have three games at home. What are you going to do? Are you going to fold in and kind of go through the motions the rest of the year? Or are they going to kind of continue to stay engaged? And they had a two-in-one week. And you could argue that neither win was necessarily pretty, but they defended their ass off and they played with great effort and they out-rebounded their opponent in all three games. That is a telltale sign of a team that hasn't quit, and they deserve credit for that. The offensive product isn't great. We've spoken about that ad nauseum. I talked the last week on the podcast about how there are pieces to build around between Morrell and Ruffin. They're real players, and I'd like to see a little bit more, and I think everyone would from Brakefield offensively, but he gives them pretty decent effort defensively and at least tries on the rebounding front. Numbers don't always add that up, but it looks at least looks like he's giving effort there. There's pieces to build around. What's ultimately going to determine Kermit Davis's fate is how he builds around these in the portal. And that's two, twofold. One, you got to convince the guys you have, those young pieces, to stay. And two, you got to get better with evaluations, whether it be the portal or high school kids. I mean, they have three high school kids on this roster that can't play this year. And most people that know basketball better than I do, you heard Bra- if you've listened to this podcast regularly, Bracken pretty openly says most people don't think those guys are high major players. When one, two, or all three of those spots could have gone to, I don't know, a transfer guard that can fill it up, just even if he's a defensive liability. Or, you know, a three-point shooter that will shoot 40% for a year and give you an actual presence from there. So they're going to have to get better at building this roster around them, around those young pieces. But there is something to build around. With that said, you got to give them credit for the toughness they showed last night because it got ugly late. Ole Miss, I believe, won this basketball game without having a field goal for the final – let me make sure I have this correct. Nine minutes and 40 seconds of this game. I'm not kidding. Until the break field layup when LSU screwed up getting the basketball up the floor in a hurry and Breakfield stole it or whoever stole it and Breakfield got the layup with 10 seconds left to put the game away at 75-69. Ole Miss's last field goal in that game – was a Matthew Morrell three at the nine minute and 50 second mark. Ole Miss made it nine minutes and 40 seconds without a field goal and won an SEC game on the road. That is remarkable. And part of it's not good, but you got to admire that part of it's not good. That's not a great stat, but you have to admire the toughness that they showed on the defensive end to continue to guard and continue to preserve a lead. Ole Miss had its, arguably its best offensive stretch of the season in the first half of that game. They made eight straight or nine straight field goal attempts, which there's no way that has happened before in the Kermit Davis era. There's no way that has happened this year. Ole Miss got up 43-19. to LSU closed the half on like a 16-2 to run that between both halves extended to a 19-2 to run that cut the lead to eight. Ole Miss had another seven-minute drop in this game. Ole Miss basically had 15 minutes of this game where it did not record a field goal in secession. So you had a seven minute stretch in the first half and a nine minute stretch in the second half, roughly give or take roundup. We'll call it 15 minutes and beat pretty much a full strength LSU team on the road. That's remarkable. Now that's also a product of everything we just outlined with the offensive product being so bad and really there being no excuse for it being as bad as it is, but that's a credit to them not quitting and the toughness they showed. And part of this is being a screwed up roster, but when Ruffin went out, you're already down your two best guards at that point, right? Joiner's on the bench because he has a back issue that's going to keep him out at least six weeks. I wouldn't necessarily be totally optimistic about him playing for the rest of the year. Just read into that what you want to, just a hunch. But you're down your two best guards. Even a good team is going to struggle to get the basketball up the court and have good, decent to sufficient guard play when they're down their two best guards. I don't know if any of you guys caught the Kentucky LSU game about three weeks ago early in this year that actually started LSU's kind of coming onto the scene as, oh, these guys are actually pretty good. Kentucky lost severe Wheeler about five and a half minutes into that game with a concussion. And that was one guard. And Kentucky struggled to get the basketball up the court and score and run good half-court offense. Ole Miss for the remainder of that game. And they lost in Baton Rouge. And Ole Miss is down two guards for a team that's already offensively challenged. And granted, it was terrible offensively for pretty much that entire second half. And they were still able to come out with a win with the way they defended and the way they rebounded because they're an undersized team that lacks depth in some senses. But the effort on the rebounding front over the last four games, let's see, I'm about to look at the split box score last night. 
they pulled 34 rebounds to LSU, or they pulled 29. So they got out rebounded last night. That would have been four in a row, though, where they out rebounded the opponent. But 20, 34 29 is not a rebounding margin where you look up and think, damn, like we certainly lost that game. So the point being in all of that, they play with great effort. They play with great effort on the defensive end of the floor as offensively challenged as they are, and they were able to preserve and get a pretty quality road win. Not that it ends up mattering, but you got to give Kermit credit. And I guess back to the guard point as I kind of ramble here, as much as Kermit's at fault for the roster construction and how bad this is offensively, even without Joyner, because as I've said ad nauseum on this podcast, this wasn't a great product with Jarkel Joyner on the floor from an offensive standpoint. You got to give him credit for last night because Austin Crowley, who had to play no matter how many fouls he had because of how shorthanded they are from a ball handler standpoint, fouled out with a little over three minutes to go. I think it was right after the last media timeout, maybe it was a little bit before. Ole Miss basically survived the last four minutes of this game without anyone that can handle the basketball. You can count Matthew Morrell, I guess, and Ty Fagan, I guess, but neither one of them were brought here to Ole Miss to be the primary ball handler in crunch time nursing lead on the road in the in an SEC game. I can promise you that. And it wasn't pretty, right? I mean, their best press break was turning it over, LSU turning it back over, two guys falling on the floor, and Ole Miss getting a layup by getting a 50-50 ball and throwing it up the floor out of chaos. Like, this was not the prettiest thing in the world. But credit to Kermit, the most crucial possession of the game, it is 72-69 to 69 with a little over, what, that was about – 40, 40 seconds left, so or 55 seconds left. Ole Miss gets the basketball across half court, and they run a little bit of like a kind of an up-screen action from the baseline up to the top of the key for Ty Fagan. It looked like they were trying to get him something going to his right hand and kind of get him going towards the rim, or, you know, depending how, on how the screener came off the screen, and potentially an open three-point shot, which Fagan has made enough to take. And at that point, again, what are your options with Joyner out, Crowley out, and – roughing out but point being it ends up being kind of a ticky-tack hand check foul on Darius Days you could debate whether the foul call was great Ole Miss shot like 14 more free throws than LSU that doesn't really happen a ton when you're on the road in the SEC but you got to give Kermit a little bit of credit for getting them up the court and in some sort of organized action um, in that moment because you're down pretty much all of your ball handlers and to get into something organized and get a guy to the free throw line even if it was kind of a gift you got to give him some credit there. So, you know, in all the bad that's been this year, they haven't quit. And this was a really impressive win. I don't know what it means for anything, but it does go to show you that they're still invested in the season and this young core is sort of kind of figuring it out. So props to Kermit Davis and Ole Miss last night. There are bigger problems that remain that they're going to have to solve. A lot of them are not going to get solved until the offseason. But again, Pat on the back, they didn't quit, and they got a really nice win last night against FBI wiretap Will. All right, that is pretty much our show today. That is uh, all I had on the docket to cover. Uh, hopefully this wasn't too wide-ranging and rambling, but uh, definitely too much uh, too much going on in the Ole Miss world to uh, not put a midweek podcast out. So if you made it to the end, I appreciate you making this a part of your day slash night. Michael Borky and I will be discussing probably some of the same topics, certainly uh, more, uh, more added to the conversation with Borky on board. As I've, uh, as I've said a couple of times on this podcast, I don't love doing the solo part of it because uh, my strategy with podcasts has always been if I'm the smartest person on the podcast, it's probably not a great podcast. And uh, when I'm the only person on it, that pretty much makes me the smartest by default. So anyway, we'll be back at it on Friday with uh, Mailbag Friday and also a discussion of uh, NIL signing day, all the typical stuff with uh, my old radio cohort, Michael Borky. So uh, get your mailbag questions in, throw them at me on Twitter, email, wherever you would like to reach me, and we will hit those as well as a uh, great conversation I'm looking forward to on Friday. So you guys have a great middle part of your week, and we'll catch you on Friday.